Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again, and welcome to the Aranex podcast. I'm Craig Eason from Fathom World, and in this episode, we're looking underwater. So, let's start with some music to the ears of anyone who loves the sea. Whale song. The sound of whales is perhaps one of the most well-known natural sounds in the oceans, after perhaps the sounds of the waves crashing onto beaches. And in this episode, we're going to hear how anthropogenic or human-created noise is potentially impacting the environment, and that means noise from ships as well as other ocean economies such as oil and gas and the growing number of wind farms. We'll also hear how the clicks and noises of sperm whales could lead us to understand extraterrestrial life. There's a lot of different noises in the oceans, and before I get into the deep decibels of this podcast episode, I've got a little audio test for you. What do you think this is? Or this... Or even this. The answer will come later in the programme, but first, let's have a quick look at what science calls the ocean soundscape, the noise that is in the oceans. What are these natural sounds of the oceans, and what do they mean? Also, what is underwater sound? Have you ever wondered just exactly how your hearing is so different when you're in the water compared to out of it? Underwater sound is... Uh, is- counterintuitive uh you know we we think of noise in in human terms in terms of how how far away something might um annoy you if there was a a noisy neighbor or or whatever um underwater because water is much more dense than air um sound can travel thousands of kilometers uh underwater so there was an experiment done in the 90s which would not be conducted today um, where there was a low-frequency sound source, um, I think it was somewhere off of S- Southern Africa, which was then heard pretty much all the way around the world um, through through propagation. And it's it's believed that um, in ocean basins, for example, there there's the potential for baleen whales to uh, communicate right across them, so many thousands of kilometers. That's Nathan Merchant. He works at the UK Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Agriculture Science, or CFAS, as it's known. It's a government agency which advises the UK's Government Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs on lots of things to do with the marine environment, including underwater noise. And Nathan is CFAS's principal scientist for noise and bioacoustics. So we're primarily interested in noise uh, pollution, so noise generated by human activities that could have an effect on uh, underwater uh, life. Um, And a lot of our work is to do with monitoring levels of underwater noise pollution in 
UK waters. Uh, it's one of our responsibilities. So we have a network of um, hydrophones, uh, underwater microphones in um, English and Welsh waters, and we uh, carry out the assessment of underwater noise levels in UK waters by uh, mapping uh, levels of shipping noise uh, in particular uh, using AIS ship tracking data in, in UK waters. So a lot of our work is trying to create um, visual representations of the uh, soundscape uh, in British waters. And that soundscape can be quite noisy already, he says. There's three types of noise in the oceans. There's the man-made or anthropogenic noise, and then there's the biotic and abiotic. Abiotic is natural noise in the seas, from the rainfall, from the waves, the surf, the wind, and even lightning strikes. And the biotic noise, that's the noise generated from animals. The worry is that the anthropogenic noise is drowning out and interfere with that biotic sound. One of the environmental groups that wants more to be done about the amount of anthropogenic underwater noise is IFOR, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. You know, seismic air, air gun surveys for oil and gas, naval sonar, pile driving for things like um, uh, wind turbines or, or oil and gas platforms. Those are all impulsive noise. So if you imagine a, um, a pneumatic drill outside of your house, um, with, you know, someone doing some building work, it could actually cause you to ha- um, have hearing, uh, hearing impairments as a result, especially if you were too close. And with those kind of impulsive noises, uh, animals, again, the sensitive animals like whales and dolphins they can have an acute response which could actually be something as 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 uh, serious as death um, or severe injury with um kind of what we call ambient noise which is produced by shipping noise by shipping sorry um that increases the background noise level throughout the world's oceans and it travels incredibly efficiently so Basically, everywhere in the world that um, a underwater hydrophone has been dropped in the water, you can hear shipping noise from the equator to the North Pole to the Southern Ocean. There is a recording of, of shipping noise in the background and it travels particularly well because it is directed downwards into what's called the SOFAR channel. It's this deep, deep sound cha- channel and that allows the, the, the sound to travel over incredible distances and very, very efficiently. And it's actually the same channel that you know, whales, whales used to communicate with one another. So that's where you're getting the overlap and the distortion that masks um, the kind of natural sounds of the ocean. That's Sharon Livermore, IFOR's Director of Marine Conservation, and she's actively pushing for change to the 2014 guidelines that were written at the International Maritime Organization as a way to try and get shipping to reduce its underwater noise. But she says those guidelines are largely being ignored. Well, the guidelines, um, which were, as you say, they were written in 2014. So, you know, it's a good seven, eight years ago now. And they, they, they were intended to provide general advice on reducing underwater noise from shipping to designers, to shipbuilders, to ship operators. Um, what we found, and actually, sorry, you know, the government of Canada has been very, very active in this space and They've done um, studies to kind of figure out, you know, why why are there why has there not really been any uptake of these guidelines? Why haven't you know why haven't countries and and shipping why haven't they done anything to try and action this issue of underwater noise? And we're we're much more aware now of the impact it's having on marine life on the marine environment. Um, 
but they're just not being used to make changes to reduce underwater noise. And this study that Canada did commission a couple of years ago found that there were quite a few barriers that were identified and the main one really is the lack of regulation. So these guidelines are, are just that, they're not mandatory. And, you know, for that reason, the shipping industry and countries are always going to prioritise things that are mandated as, as, they, you know, as they have to, as a requirement. The fact they're not legally binding um, was one of the things. Other things that were identified were, were things like the measurements around underwater noise not being completely clear. Um, they wanted to see more data that really demonstrates the impacts of underwater noise and were sort of calling for uh, baseline noise data as well. Many of these barriers, we believe, are, you know, they're not, you know, we don't need to do more research on the impacts of underwater noise. It's well understood now that noise is, you know, is a pollutant, it's recognised by the by UNCLOS, the, law, the International Law of the Sea is a pollutant, and under many other international agreements. So the evidence is there, we know it impacts marine species from you know, the smallest invertebrates to the largest whales. The point is really that industry, as they should, industry does prioritise the implementation of mandatory initiatives and undertaking voluntary measures such as the ones to reduce underwater noise are never going to be prioritised. So that the guidelines need to be reviewed to kind of update them with the latest understanding of, of noise from shipping, but also to kind of figure out, you know, next steps, like how do we how do we encourage uptake uh, around this important issue? But now the IMO's Marine Environmental Protection Committee has agreed to re-look at the guidelines and has passed it on to one of the subcommittees to review and make recommendations. I4 and a number of other groups think that as the guidelines have been so ineffective at reducing noise from ships, that there should be something more mandatory in place. You know, the barriers that have been identified, they're not, you know, not all of them are questionable many of them are very you know they're very real barriers you know how do we reduce noise from from ships and some of the suggestions in the original original guidelines around uh countries identifying the noisiest 10 percent of the ships in their fleet which um which are creating pretty much the majority of the noise from the shipping industry those kind of actions which need to be taken in order to determine okay where are our noisy old ships and what can we do with them to um, improve their efficiency around noise. So retrofitting them with, um, you know, new technologies, um, updating the propeller, which is the main source of noise for shipping. Um, those kind of actions, which would have a huge effect on the entire global uh, footprint from the shipping industry, that, you know, that makes the most sense really in terms of what needs to be done. It's identifying the ships that need to be retrofitted and, you know, basically getting on and doing it, but then also looking at the design of new ships and actually having noise as a factor that's considered when those ships are being designed and built. Because at the moment, noise just isn't even on the radar for shipping architects and um, builders. There is very clear evidence now that underwater noise uh, is affecting individual animals. So certainly there's, there's very clear evidence on uh, for marine mammals, lots of uh, evidence emerging for a lot of fish species as well, uh, as well as uh, invertebrate species, uh, which are the, the kind of less less studied taxa. Um, what's less clear is to what extent these effects that we can uh, 
study in quite controlled circumstances or or in field measurements uh, on individual animals does that translate into population level effects does that translate into ecosystem scale effects um the these that that question is a very difficult one to answer because there are so many other factors uh human generated or or natural which um affect you know population scale changes so um that's a really tricky tricky question but a key question for policymakers uh is you know uh, do do these um is underwater noise really a significant threat at the large scale and so there there are scientists who are dedicating a lot of time to trying to model the the likelihood that um this is uh having population scale effects um and of course there there are people who would advocate a, a precautionary approach and say well so many environmental indicators uh in marine habitats are uh not doing very well at the moment there's a lot of cumulative pressure on the marine environment from human activities and perhaps noise is a relatively easy pollutant to control and it's also one which you know if you take noise out of the water then it's pretty quickly gone away whereas some of the pressures on on the marine environment are very kind of persistent chemical things that will be with us long before our time Nathan and Sharon are also concerned about other sources of noise in the marine environment from sources other than the shipborne noise, particularly as we talk about nations building up their ocean economies. It's not just shipping. We, we're also concerned about uh, what we call impulsive noise, which um, loosely things that go bang. So, you know, explosions, seismic surveys, um, pile driving of offshore wind farms uh, are, are examples of impulsive noise um and yeah international coordination is very much needed not only because the the animals that that could be affected you know don't respect whether they're in you know german or dutch waters um it it doesn't really matter you know we need to kind of think about um managing our our oceans on a kind of ecosystem basis and not according to, to national boundaries um but also because of uh many of these activities are very international in nature. Actually, when it comes to impulsive noise, we can kind of, um, the, the, they tend to be activities which you need to get permission to do anyway. So uh, if you want to build a wind farm, if you want to carry out a seismic survey to look for oil and gas beneath the seabed, then you need to get a license from a regulator. And so through that process, we can um, look at imposing uh, restrictions or providing incentives to do things quieter. When it comes to shipping, um, it's it's a very international business. You know, your ship might be owned by you know uh, your listeners are no doubt familiar with this, but the the the, the shipping industry involving many different players and uh, its regulation needing to happen at an international level, which which is the whole purpose of the IMO, um, it's very difficult for a single country or a single port even to have much of an effect on. Um, the you know to, to provide much of an incentive shall we say uh to make ships quieter it needs it needs that coordination and so that's that's uh absolutely why these um efforts at the imo are are the right um the right forum for that to happen um at the same time you know other international fora c- can help to kind of provide impetus to that you know it may be that um you know, coordination within within Europe, for example, can can help to show how um, 
how some of these uh, regulations could be implemented and, and to, to do some of the science that will be needed to um, to make sure that they're well uh, evidenced. But when it comes to the noise from a ship, there are things that can be done. Many of the solutions that are suggested in the guidelines will also help reduce a ship's fuel bill. A double benefit there, as one can see, reducing noise, reducing fuel consumption and therefore reducing CO2 and other emissions into the air. I spoke to Dr. Quinn Yu. He's Director of Technology at the US Classification Society, ABS, and he told me that on a technology perspective, ships generate three types of noise in general. That's the airborne noise, the shipborne noise, which is a lot to do with the comfort and welfare of passenger and crew, and then the vessel noise that goes underwater. Underwater noise, uh, the main source of um, uh, animal noise is uh, from a propeller. So that's the main uh, noise generation uh, mechanism, let's say, on board. And also uh, uh, for commercial ships, uh, those uh, machineries on board uh, will generate noise as well, uh, either through uh, noise emission directly into water or through uh, uh, structural vibration, because those uh, machinery, uh, those equipment on board will cause a structural vibration, and then the structural vibration will generate and noise emission. Um, the third one is a relatively uh, small part of the equation. Uh, it is uh, the flow around the ship will also cause some element of uh, inward noise. So typically the noise level generated by a propeller will include uh, uh, two components. One is a so-called tuner noise. Uh, it is uh, uh, the multiple, the frequency of that uh, part of the noise is at the multiple of uh, propeller uh, rotation frequencies. And then uh, the second part is so-called uh, uh, broadband noise, uh, which is uh, very much associated with the cavitation of the uh, propeller. Once the propeller generates cavitation bubbles and the bubble will burst and uh, we're talking not just one or two bubbles and uh, it is a collection of a huge amount of bubbles and then uh, the sound, uh, the annual sound generated by the bubble bursting uh, will create a broadband annual noise. Well, when it comes to the technologies that uh, one can put onto a ship, um, you have a white paper that you published earlier this year, and there's a list of ducts and fins, etc., that can be can be installed. How does a duct? I've heard about the, um, like the Muis duct. I've heard about that being used to improve efficiency of a vessel, so that the fuel consumption can be improved by one or two percent. But how does a duct? How do these technologies? Um, work in actually reducing the sound and are they better fitted are there technologies that are better fitted for certain ship types or certain types of propulsion so an azimuth propeller for example better than a um, a direct line propeller attached to a diesel engine yeah uh that's a good question actually uh when we look into uh now uh, kind of a, a um uh, interesting design topic is the co-design of the energy efficiency and uh and with the noise reduction. Uh, and that uh, ductile propeller, uh, those uh, uh, things uh, that are designed to reduce the, um, um, let's say, the um, resistance to the vessel 
can also contribute to certain level of uh, reduction of uh, analog noise. Um, remember, for analog noise, one of the main uh, source is from propeller. Uh, when we can uh, design those uh, ducts and fins in a certain way, uh, they can regulate the flow coming into the propeller. And then that can uh, adjust the pattern of the uh, cavitation, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, initiation of the uh, cavitation. So that can, uh, again, to a certain extent, reduce the uh, cavitation-induced um, uh, noise. And um, again, uh, the design of those uh, um, energy-saving devices so far are uh, pretty much focused on energy efficiency. Um, one of the uh, main uh, research topics right now is to look into the possibility to combine the design for energy efficiency and the design for the uh, end noise reduction. And certainly for propulsion system, there are some uh, very specific designs, uh, especially for the propeller. Uh, you can put uh, uh, those uh, like uh, a twisting edge and uh, put it in uh, those uh, specific uh, type of uh, propellers uh, that are used uh, to reduce the uh, underwind noise. And those are uh, used for some time, uh, especially for military vessels, uh, but for commercial vessels, uh, still uh, uh, they are relatively uh, less used than those are common, like uh, off-the-shelf propeller designs. One of the technologies that I've read about that began many, many years ago, and I've seen the US Navy using it, is air bubbles. They used a system called the Prairie Masker um, to produce bubbles coming out of the hull and even out of the uh, propeller to mask the sound print of the the vessels and um, it, it has naval and military implications to make sure that they weren't detected by submarines, enemy submarines. But likewise, I've heard of um, air bubbles being used, uh, an air curtain, I think it's called, being used around pylons being driven into the ground to reduce the noise being spread of the of the pylon driving. Um, and, and, and I know also that there's a lot of work now with air lubrication systems on ships. Again, another system that is being used to improve the efficiency of the vessel. But you mentioned a second ago that it was the bubbles bursting in the cavitation of the propeller that creates some of the noise. How, how can we have noise from the bubbles bursting, but at the same time have bubbles protecting the oceans from noise? Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, um, the cavitation uh, generated bubbles uh, will uh, at different shapes and at different frequencies, and also the bursting of the bubble uh, will generate uh, was a high energy uh, noise emission. For those uh, bubbles generated for air curtain, or now we have uh, other type of uh, energy saving uh, technologies of the air lubrication, also generates bubbles. Um, those bubbles are different from the bubble uh, due to the cavitation. Um, and then uh, there's a way to control the uh, uh, pattern of those bubbles, the size of those bubbles, uh, and also the uh, uh, distribution of those bubbles. So um, for those uh, analog uh, uh, noise generated uh, cavitation, uh, the, uh, essentially the only way uh, that we can do is to regulate the um, uh, cavitation occurrence, uh, either reduce the speed or uh, change the um, uh, way that uh, those uh, uh, cavitation bubbles generated uh, through the operation measures or design considerations. 
um, for air lubrication system and also for the uh, specific uh, system designed by navies uh, to uh, mask the uh, uh, propeller generating noise. Um, the uh, uh, bubbles are generated again in a different way and also uh, the um, uh, the uh, uh, noise uh, created by those uh, systems tend to be more, uh, let's say, much more broadband. Uh, essentially, uh, it can uh, uh, mask the uh, noise from uh, propellers. Dr. Quing Yu, who's Director of Technology at the U.S. Classification Society, ABS, on the sources of underwater noise from ships and the good and bad of the air bubble. Now, staying, of course, with the theme of underwater noise, let's talk about whale communication and artificial intelligence. Sperm whales have a particular call, and according to scientists, each individual pod, possibly each individual, can have a characteristic focal sound. Now there's an ambitious project that's been launched in the Caribbean, off the island of Dominica, to try and see if scientists can use recent advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning to translate the clicks of the sperm whale. It's called Project SETI, where SETI means the Cetacean Translation Initiative. It's non-human communication. It's a huge undertaking, and it's a well-funded one at that, and it's bringing together experts in cryptography, robotics, linguistics, artificial intelligence, and marine biology. It's developing a whale listening system of hydrophones and even a robotic fish, to listen to a specific pod of sperm whales in a 20-kilometre area off of the Caribbean island. Amongst the team is Professor Dan Chernov, the project's Chief Operations Officer and a marine biologist based at Haifa University in Israel. I spoke to him about the project and the possible outcomes. With all the uh, machine learning technology and AI that has evolved really quickly over the last decade. Maybe now it's possible finally to decipher communication between sperm whales because they're using uh, actually something that's close to a Morse code, a single click uh, with different repetitions, and, uh, but with always the same structure. Like five notes or three notes depends on the part. And already there was... Uh, quite a bit of um, annotated data that we could start with uh, to show proof of concept. And the big idea behind it is to finally break the institution barrier and therefore, for the first time perhaps, uh, try and communicate or understand communication of these mammals or actually any other creature on their own terms. Mainly listening to try and understand the communication, but uh, finally perhaps also sending messages and getting replies. It is called SETI also because it is theoretically the training wheel for the human kind to try and reach out to other civilizations if they ever, if ever we counter them to understand how to uh, try and decipher and communicate with something very, very different. Dan Chernov on sperm whales and the attempt to translate their underwater sounds using artificial intelligence and the potential in the future to apply such learnings to other species and possibly even extraterrestrial life. Well, that's nearly it for this episode of the Aronex podcast. But before we go, back to those three sounds I played at the start of this episode. This one 
is a minky whale. And this... It's a Weddell seal. And this final one... So that's it for me. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. Look on the Fathom World website where you'll find other stories relating to underwater noise and the transition and transformation of the maritime and ocean space. And feel free to get in touch with me and I'll talk to you next time. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>